Thank you for joining us for Everything HR Owner to Owner Live Podcast. My name is Felicia Harris, and I'll be your host this morning. Now, you already know, owning a company is complex. There are a zillion moving parts. And when you bring employees into the picture, things get even more complex. Whether you have one employee or 10,000 employees, it can be a challenge running things smoothly. And that's where everything HR comes in. We do one thing, HR. We're a human capital expert. We're problem solvers. We make things simpler. And this Owner to Owner podcast will provide you with the latest HR trends, whether you do business in your home state or across the United States. You'll be able to call in and talk with HR professionals about the issues that keep you up at night, but more importantly, you'll be able to hear best practices from other business owners that have been in your shoes. Today's podcast is going to be about employment law updates, and we have a special guest, Littler Middleton Law Firm, and they're going to take your questions and provide you with legal updates. And right now, I'm going to turn it over to Anton, who can also introduce his other partners that are there with him. Anton? Hi, Felicia. Well, thank you so much for having us. We've had a little bit of a switch up on attendees here today. For those listening uh, out of Michigan, it's about negative five degrees. And I guess if you live in the Midwest, generally, you're familiar with that temperature drop, too. So I'm sitting here with uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Bill Vincent and Gary Ankers. Uh, Like Felicia said, we are lawyers at the Littler Mendelssohn Law Firm, which is headquartered in San Francisco. But uh, we have an office here in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, we practice exclusively uh, labor and employment law. And, in fact, we are the largest labor and employment law firm in the world with uh, something about, what, guys, 70 offices in, in the United States and 15 or more overseas, I think, right? About 1,400 attorneys. That's right. So I'll let uh, Bill Vincent and uh, Gary Ankers introduce themselves really quickly before we uh, jump in to some uh, legal updates for you. So, Bill? Good morning, Felicia, and um, the listeners of the podcast. My name is Bill Vincent. Uh, I've been practicing law here in Michigan for, I think it's about 34 years now, with an emphasis on uh, labor and employment, and uh, happy to be with you this morning. And Felicia and uh, attendees, my name is Gary Ankers. I'm uh, Bill and Anton's partner. I have been practicing law, almost exclusively employment law, for 31 years. So Bill has me by a few years, but between the two of us, you got got a lot of years of experience to do a lot of uh, employment litigation defense, as well as some traditional labor and uh, union activity work as well. Just a good point, Gary. One thing I should mention is that Littler Mendelssohn is exclusively uh, an employer or management uh, defense firm, so we handle issues that arise uh, with uh, workplace activity, uh, companies, employees, and also union involvement. That would be, of course, opposed to a plaintiff side employment firm that would represent uh, individuals in workplace conflict or lawsuits with their employers. So I understand that uh, we have some inquiries, some questions that folks have for us, uh, so we want to save some time for that. So with that in mind, I'm going to jump in to a a few topics. Um, First, uh, what is sort of on the top of many employers' mind here in Michigan is the state's new uh, paid sick leave act, which is going to be going into effect uh, on March 29th of this year, 2019, and 
I'll be talking about a little bit of the background with this Paid Sick Leave Act uh, with uh, the state's minimum wage law because they did pass through the legislature at the same time. So I'll, talk, talk, I'll be talking about them in tandem a bit. Anton, if, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a ballot initiative here in Michigan that addressed paid sick leave mm-hmm. that passed in November. Right. Well, my understanding is that there's some quirk here in Michigan that allowed the legislature then to step in and make changes to what the voters had approved in November, and that's what we're dealing or will be dealing with uh, this coming uh, this coming spring. You're exactly right, Bill. So the uh, both initiatives started as ballot initiatives, which were passed, uh, which excuse me, which were qualified to be on the ballot in November uh, 2018 in this past election. Now, like you alluded to, the state constitution requires qualifying ballot measures to go through the state legislature, which may then be adopted uh, by the state legislature. They they could be uh, brought in uh, and uh, sort of amended and given back to the voters for uh, a different version to consider. But in this case, the legislature chose to adopt the initiative as written. Now, according to the state constitution, the governor's signature would not be required to enact those proposals. And what had a lot of folks initially scratching their heads was, okay, why would a state with a Republican governor and Republican majorities in both state houses enact this, uh, what some would consider uh, a very employee-friendly paid sick leave act? Uh, But as I'll explain, it really might not be radical. Uh, What state uh, lawmakers likely did was look across the country and notice that these paid sick leave laws have been very successful. So in recent history, only two proposals had failed to pass. One was in Berkeley, California, where the failure was actually the the desired result. There were two measures in that instance on the ballot, an original item proposed and a measure proposed by the city council as an alternative. Instead, all parties agreed on a compromise and that's what the city eventually adopted. But unfortunately, that occurred before the two measures could be removed from the ballot. So both the city and the original measure drafters advocated successfully for the constituents to vote for the constituents to vote down the measures. So in essence, so it failed to pass, but that was the desired result in that case. Uh, the only other recent incident was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when a measure lost by less than a thousand votes. So. What I'm saying is that the state legislature here in Michigan likely saw the writing on the wall and knew that uh, this paid sick leave was going to pass in November if it went to a voter initiative and, as a result, took it into their own hands. So, so, so prior to the initiative, uh, there was no um, mandatory paid sick leave here in Michigan. Uh, that sometimes employees are surprised by that because many employers do provide uh, paid sick leave uh, as a benefit to their employees. But un- until this ballot initiative passed and, and now the subsequent legislation, there was no mandatory uh, paid sick leave here in Michigan. Was, was, Anton, is that did that make Michigan kind of the exception to the rule in the country, or is, are, are these paid sick leave laws something that we're seeing ramp up now across the country. We're definitely seeing them ramp up, but Michigan is now the first state, at least in the Midwest, that has jumped on uh, the bandwagon in terms of providing paid sick leave. So so how did they, what's the difference between what 
the good voters here in Michigan passed uh, or agreed to in November and what the legislature uh, is going to or has enacted that will uh, take effect um, in, a, in a month or two from now. All right. So once it was taken, once it was adopted and therefore brought into the legislature, taken off the November ballot, the Michigan, uh, both houses of the Michigan legislature amended it greatly. So dramatic changes were made to uh, the entire the entire act. Favorable or, or more favorable to the employer or employee, or is there much of a difference between what was voted in and what was subsequently passed? Drastically more favorable to the employer. So the scope of coverage changed from all private employers in the state to those with just 50 or more employees. So under the ballot initiative, the law would apply to any, any company in the state that had an employee, so any company. Now it's any company with 50 or more employees. The bill also carves out uh, other notable coverage exceptions, including uh, exempt executives under the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, as well as the administrative and professional exemption under that law. Uh, individuals covered by a collective bargaining agreement would not be covered under the Paid Medical Leave Act. Individuals who primary, whose primary work location is outside Michigan and various other transportation industry employees would not be covered. So, so who does that leave? <laughs> so that leaves uh, your, what we're seeing primarily is uh, your uh, you know, part-time workers generally would fall, in to the, uh, to as, would fall into as eligible employees under this, under this act. But there's another significant revision to the Paid Medical Leave Act, and that is that it creates a rebuttable presumption of compliance with the law if an employer provides at least 40 hours of paid leave, any kind of paid leave, annually to their employees. So so long as an employer is providing, providing 40 hours of paid leave, whether that's PTO or sick leave or vacation, whatever they want to call it, as long as it's at least 40 hours of paid leave in a given year to their employees, there's a rebuttable, excuse me, there's a presumption that uh, they're in compliance with the law. So, so the law is, if, if I recall, uh, takes effect, uh, what, at uh, the end of March of, of this year? Correct, March 29th. And at that point, what employers should have their antenna up in terms of what they may uh, have to do in order to make sure they're in compliance with the law? Well, the... Uh, the first thing you should do is call your legal counsel, whoever you use, uh, to make sure that uh, your policies are reviewed and, and, and up, up to snuff and in compliance with the law. Um, if you do not currently offer at least 40 hours of paid leave, uh, it, it's important to determine if you, uh, if you fall under this uh, act as, as a covered employer with, with 50 or more employees and get an understanding if, if your workforce is also eligible for paid leave or whether, uh, conversely, if they fall under any of the exceptions. So, so, so is the starting point at least for in terms of um, if, if you're an employer, whether or not you have to lose any sleep at night come March 29, if you have more than 50 employees and this is something that needs to be on your radar, but if you have less than 50 employees, it doesn't have to be? Right. And one question that we're getting uh, frequently here in Detroit is whether the law uh, as written, means 50 employees in the state of Michigan or 50 employees overall, and just one of those folks falls within the state. And to be honest, it, it isn't 
uh, abundantly clear as the law is written. So to be uh, cautious, we're advising employers with 50 or more employees globally, as long as they have at least one in the state of Michigan, to be on the lookout for uh, for this act. And so um, any chance that we'll get any guidance from the state uh, before, <laughs> the, uh, before the law comes into effect to address questions uh, like that? You know, if I, if I knew that, I'd be asking for a pay raise immediately. <laughs> um, one can only hope that, you know, at least uh, we would get even an FAQ, uh, frequently answered que- asked questions, uh, so uh, we could just have a little bit more guidance about some of these ambiguities in the act. But for now, I think it's just better, uh, better to be safe than sorry. I did want to touch a little bit on the accrual rate of, of paid sick leave okay. under the act. So, in Anton, the can I interrupt you just one quick second? I want to remind our listeners that if they have a question, if they've dialed in or they're coming in um, by the short link, that if they have questions, email us at support at everythinghrfs.net. So that's support at everythinghrfs, as in Frank, as is in Sam.net. We do have questions that are coming in. Um, and so if you want us, everyone is on mute right now that have come in. And so if you want to ask your question out loud directly to them, Send us the email and we'll unmute you so we know what you're lining. Make sure that you give us your telephone number so that we can unmute you too as well. And others, otherwise, you can just email us your question. Make sure you put your name and your company name so that we can read your question over to them. Thanks. Go right ahead. I'm sorry. That's all good. And if you ever want to pause to take questions, we can certainly do that as well, Felicia. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, cool. Go ahead. So I mean, cool. I'll let you. Yeah, so if you if you uh, do not currently, if an employer does not currently provide at least 40 hours of paid leave and uh, believes that they're covered because they have 50 or more employees, it's important to know that uh, employees accrue one hour of paid sick leave for every, 30, every 35 hours worked. Under the original act, it was one hour for every 30 hours worked. So uh, they bump that up to 35 hours, and as a result, it's a little bit more employer-friendly. In addition, the original uh, ballot initiative did not set accrual or carryover caps or allow front-loading of paid sick time at the beginning of a, a year. However, that changed with the law that will go effect in March, which now permits a 40-hour cap for annual accrual and carryover and use. So what that means is that employers can cap paid sick leave under the Michigan law at 40 hours. They can cap the carryover amount to 40 hours, and they can cap the usage amount in any year to 40 hours. And then employers can also avoid carryover of any accrual by just front-loading 40 hours of paid sick leave each year. I think the, the the takeaway, Anton, is that um, leave questions, whether they're in the context of a paid sick leave statute or the uh, Family Medical Leave Act or uh, even your own um, policies that uh, you may have in terms of medical leave and uh, short-term disability and things of those nature, uh, they're very often driven by is the employer covered, meaning does the law apply to the um, employer, and if the employer is covered, uh, the question then becomes whether the employee is eligible, and that can vary from uh, statute to statute, and it's important that 
uh, if you believe or you know that you're a covered employee under any of these laws, that you reach out to your uh, counsel if you have a question as to whether or not an employee uh, is eligible under the particular um, law and uh, how you respond to a request for, for leave. Yeah, absolutely right. I did mention at the outset that along with the uh, Paid Sick Leave Act, uh, the state legislature did something similar with a minimum wage ballot initiative that was coming down the pipeline. So like what you mentioned, Bill, about the sort of adoption and amending of the ballot initiative regarding paid sick leave, the legislature did the same with the minimum wage law. So under the ballot initiative, which was set to go up to a vote to the public in November, uh, the state minimum wage was scheduled to increase in Michigan from $9.25 to $10 per hour around April or on March 29, 2019, with additional preset increases each January 1st through 2022, at which point it would have been $12 per hour. So by January 1st, 2022, the minimum wage in the state would have been $12 per hour under the original Minimum Wage Act. However, what was ultimately adopted significantly slowed the rate of increase to between 21 and 26 cents per hour annually, meaning that the minimum wage wouldn't surpass $12. It would hit about $12.05, so surpass $12 per hour until 2030. So eight years later. So that's something else that uh, folks should watch out for is that the minimum wage will increase at the end of March. Are there any questions on, on that topic, Felicia? Otherwise, we can we can hop into uh, another hot topic in the state and something that we've been getting a lot of inquiries about. Um, we did get a question in, and it's coming from Kenji Lemon from One Stop Property Maintenance here in uh, Detroit. And I'm going to read his question, but I think it's a little bit different. He's like, what is the current minimum wage for salaried workers? Salaried workers, believe- the, the, the minimum wage is the minimum wage, whether you are a salaried exempt worker or you are a non-exempt worker. The difference that you have is a salaried worker who is exempt must receive a guaranteed preset wage for any week in which he or she performs duties. If that person performs the duties, that person is entitled to the compensation. It cannot be reduced for either the quantity or quality of the work. So the minimum wage is not different between an exempt salaried employee or a non-exempt hourly worker. The only difference is whether or not that individual is going to be paid that predetermined amount for each week in which he or she works. But we don't typically get minimum wage questions, Gary, at least in in my experience, when, when it's a salaried employee. That's correct, because uh, if you're doing it correctly as an employer, you aren't docking their pay for absences of less than a day, um, whether it's sickness or vacation. If, if, they're, if they leave at 2 in the afternoon, you're not docking a salaried employee's uh, pay. So that current $9.25 
hourly wage is not going to be affected by that. But but conversely, when when that salaried employee is needed to work more than forty hours, they're not they're not getting an overtime. Rate. That's correct. That the the salaried exempt employee gets that same agreed upon wage whether they work. 30 hours in that week or whether they work 50 hours in that week. So, so it, does it become important in terms of classifying employees or can, can I just as an employer say, uh, Gary's going to be exempt and, and Anton's going to be non-exempt or, or is there some restrictions on that? That's a great uh, question, Bill. Uh, simply classifying an employee as a salaried employee does not satisfy the Fair Labor Standards Act white-collar exemptions uh, test that you, you need to undertake as an employer. For purposes of this podcast, we don't have enough time to discuss the intricacies of that white-collar exemption test for, for each job title. However, there are specific tests for administrative and executive employees and professional employees that must be met in order to call that person exempt and salaried. So simply calling, for example, a, an administrative assistant or a secretary, you can't say, oh, he or she is a salaried employee, so I don't have to pay him or her overtime. She, she or he would have to satisfy these very specific tests in order to, 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 to meet that white-collar exemption. Good question. Yeah. So the next topic, which is... Uh, he, actually, he actually had another couple of other questions here. One of them was, are only wages, benefits, and bonuses counted as compensation for employees? Or is there anything else is what he has at the end of here? I guess, uh, at least from the way that I look at it, um, that, that, question, that question has several different facets. One is... If you're providing some form of a benefit uh, to the employee, that covers a lot of things. And I guess I'm not sure what would fall outside of the three categories that, that you just expressed. Is, is somebody receiving wages? That could include somebody that is a salesperson who is on an incentive compensation plan. That's a different form of wages, but it, it, still, it still can be considered wages. Benefits run the gamut of uh, everything from uh, paid vacation time to what Anton talked about uh, um, in terms of sick leave, and uh, and and so uh, Gary or Anton, I'm I'm not I'm not sure I can be much uh, much more help. Yeah, I, I think that the, I mean that, that is I think Bill uh, points out something very important, which is that is an all-encompassing question, and if the question is what is included in what is classified as work time for purposes of calculating a non-exempt employee's hourly wage for purposes of then calculating overtime, there's a lot of things that go into that. Not only is it the hourly wage, but non-discretionary bonuses, for example, are included in that. In some, in some instances, time spent in a seminar um, at the employer's direction would, for example, be included as working time and part of that hourly wage. So for purposes of, of this podcast, I'm not sure we can get a dialogue going with the person who posed the question to discern exactly what, what, what he's looking for, but 
it suffice it to say that under the Fair Labor Standards Act, when you're calculating what is working time for purposes of calculating an hourly wage to then calculate the proper overtime rate, the Fair Labor Standards Act has very specific things that are both included and excluded from that calculation. Thank you. We have one other question, and we have a couple of questions in reference to immigration. One of them is, what are the common pitfalls small business owners should avoid when hiring immigrants, refugees, et cetera? Well, I think that's a very, very important question, especially given the the current uh, workplace climate and the involvement of the federal uh, immigration and customs enforcement Custom Enforcement or ICE, ICE's involvement in, in the employment sector. Before we answer that, I, I just wanted to give uh, that caller some stats and, and everyone else listening. So in 2017, ICE conducted over 1,700 worksite enforcement actions and also did 1,360 I-9 audits. And that increased dramatically in 2018 in which they conducted over 3,000 uh, worksite enforcement actions, uh, arrested over 140 individuals criminally, and also made over 170 administrative arrests and nearly doubled their I-9 audits. And so I, for um, anyone that's listening that's not familiar with what Anton is referring to as the I-9, that is the form that um, an employer is required by federal law to have um, any uh, candidate for employment or, I'm sorry, um, an individual that's been hired for employment to verify their legal status within the United States and their right to um, uh, work here in the United States. And ICE uh, begins usually any enforcement action by coming into your workplace and let's say you have 20 or 25 employees, they'll ask you to go to the employee's personnel file and, and, and pull all 25 of those I-9s. And if you do not have an I-9 on file uh, for a particular employee, that's, that's, going to, that's going to be an issue. So certainly the first thing in terms of hiring any uh, employee, whether you uh, know them to be a, uh, a naturalized citizen of the United States or somebody that's here on a work visa is to have that I-9 form filled out, which requires the employee to provide certain pieces of identification, such as a Social Security card or a passport or uh, other documentation um, establishing their right to work in the United States. Awesome. We have one other question along those lines of immigration and it comes from Carolyn Buckles of Onyx Enterprises. And her question is, considering the current environment with immigration, she has students that are, she's willing to sponsor um, to obtain their H-1B. The students currently are receiving, uh, has a work permit through their colleges and universities. But considering the current environment and that the lottery has been limited, what are the chances if they go through or she sponsor them that they would actually receive sponsorship and obtain their H-1B? And then the second part of her question is, if they do not receive the H-1B, is the application that they completed and the monies they paid for that application, is that refunded or is it just held in to go over for the next year? It's, it's not often that I'll admit to this, 
but I think all three of us will. Um, immigration is really a subspecialty that, um, for example, if, um, if this uh, uh, listener were to contact me uh, and, and ask those questions, I would connect them with one of our subject matter experts here that handle immigration issues to be able to respond to that. Um, a, there is no substitute uh, for an employer that is in that position to have uh, on call a competent immigration lawyer. Uh, it is just, there are so many moving pieces, and this, this is independent of what administration is in office at any particular time, because what I do understand of the immigration laws is, is that is that whereas in, in some areas of the law, a change of administration can result in a, in a change of, of legislation and enforcement actions or whatnot, the immigration system is really an entity unto itself that it's developed over the years to respond to uh, issues uh, like, like the caller has raised. But um, I, I guess I can say globally from seeing what we've seen, um, communications internally here at the firm, I don't think there's, there's any secret that um, uh, under the current administration, uh, immigration uh, issues are at the forefront. And so that that even uh, that even underscores uh, more the, the the need to have uh, competent immigration counsel, which we certainly do here uh, have here at Littler Mendelssohn. But uh, um, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to uh, try to respond to that question because I don't think I can do service to it. Awesome. Gary, and and I, I I agree that there there are, there are subtleties. Uh, the change with immigration laws on a daily basis. And you, you really need to make sure that you are consulting with someone who is very well versed in those types of subtleties. And Anton, I just want to piggyback on this point just a little bit more of the importance of actually having uh, an employment attorney, be it an immigration attorney or they need an employment attorney. Uh, when you have issues that come up, you can use, you can have your business attorney, a business attorney. A business attorney is not an employment attorney or an immigration attorney. And I believe you guys are willing to be co-counsel with them, but there's a huge importance in recognizing the difference in each, you know, attorney's field or lane or, or, or area of expertise. Can you guys touch on that just a little bit, how you would work with someone's existing counsel, be it of a business attorney or something of that nature? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that, that we believe in here is, is, you know, advice and counsel and paying for advice and counsel is, is a lot better than, than litigation advice and, and paying to, to litigate a case. So whenever uh, you can get in the forefront and just uh, be proactive about your policies and, and protocols, whether that's with your, your business counsel or employment counsel, that's, uh, that's always a good first step. In regards to collaborating between uh, business counsel and employment counsel, that's something that we do almost on a daily basis here at Littler Mendelssohn. As I mentioned at the beginning of the call, we practice, practice employment and labor law exclusively, so we're, we're not a, um, a uh, multi-practice firm like you might see otherwise that, you know, someone walks down the hall and they have a, an estate uh, practice group, they have a, a mergers and acquisition practice group, a uh, commercial law practice group. All we focus on every single day, day in and day out, is employment law. So uh, when folks 
have to get us with their inside counsel or uh, their outside business counsel. You know, we're very open and understanding uh, regarding the importance of collaborating with folks uh, who practice in a different area of the law than we do. Yeah, I would. I would. It harkens back to to um, something I remember. One of the uh, lawyers that was my mentor coming up that he used to tell uh, clients that uh, repairs are expensive. And what uh, he meant by that was is that um, it's much better to spend your money in the front end, picking up the phone and contacting, um, regardless of the the legal issue that you have. Let's say you have somebody that slips and falls on your premises and. You're not sure whether or not uh, you have a legal problem or what do I do or who do I call. Getting advice from somebody that practices routinely in that area is not only going to improve your legal position, it's probably in the long run going to be a more efficient um, expenditure of your, your legal dollars in that someone that practices routinely in an area is likely to have an answer more quickly for you than somebody that uh, does not routinely practice in that area. And, you know, what I find interesting is for a a 1,400-person law firm um, focusing on one single area of the law, and that being labor and employment, there's still many issues that we face as lawyers routinely that we'll reach out internally and say, hey, has somebody dealt with this particular issue before? Or within the firm, we have practice groups that focus, like, for example, on diversity inclusion issues. And so you have a good client that will call you and say, I have a, a diversity and inclusion question, and uh, what do you think? And if I'm not able to answer that, or Gary or Anton, uh, we'll turn around and send out an internal email, and, and usually without fail, you'll have a response from somebody that said, uh, put me in touch with your client. I can talk to that. In terms of having your own, for example, if if you have somebody that you've worked with, and I think this is probably true for most of the employer listeners out there, that a corporate person that uh, helped you incorporate and has been giving you business advice, but now you have a labor and employment question that's maybe outside their area of expertise, the advantage of connecting that lawyer uh, with someone um, uh, at Littler is that that person is going to have much better insight into right from the get-go in terms of what your business involves than uh, than a new labor and employment lawyer that doesn't have exposure uh, to your business. So um, uh, it's it certainly collaboration with your existing counsel is certainly something we do here routinely at Littler. And, uh, and it's a key that, um, especially if, if your business is growing, that you have good legal advice regardless of the issues involved. Awesome. And then we have a question that came in from Talisa Norton from All Pro Color in Oak Park, Michigan. Her question is, does the minimum wage increase apply to the same for students and high school interns? I believe the answer to that question is yes, that it would Whatever whatever the minimum wage is applicable um, for anyone who is performing work here in the state of Michigan, whether they be a minor or um, someone who is 18 or over, it would correspondingly increase for any any level of employees. Gary, are, is is there some exemption? For example, if I if I own the business and I have my uh, 15 year old son or daughter work for me, does 
and they're they're uh, they're an official employee on my payroll, but they happen to uh, to be my uh, son or daughter. Do, do, do the, the law still apply in that situation? You need to pay these people. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot of times where where people try to skirt uh, minimum wage laws by saying that the individual is of a certain age or is uh, of kin, but that does not fly with either state or federal law. Are there some limited extent? I don't practice routinely in the wage and hour area. That's, that's Gary's, one of Gary's um, areas of expertise. But I seem to recall, is there some limited exemptions, like for farm workers or things of that nature? There are. There, there are exemptions for certain agricultural fields. It's very specialized. And again, to the extent that you're thinking of employing in a certain industry, um, a certain age, or a certain kin, make sure you speak with your employment attorney before you undertake that, because the exemptions are very narrowly uh, viewed and very narrowly applied. Uh, But there are certain seasonal and agricultural exemptions for purposes of, of um, crops and things like that. And then we have one other question that's come in. What are some of the common pitfalls small business owners should avoid when hiring immigrants and refugees? Or did I ask that? I think that's the same question. You did, you did ask that. You did ask that, yes. Okay. All right. That's it that I see all in queue right now. Okay. We can move on. Uh, one of the other topics that we've been getting some questions about here in, uh, in Detroit is uh, whether there's going to be any impact uh, from the recent legalization of recreational marijuana in the state. So like the other uh, laws we talked about, the Medical Leave Act and minimum wage, which started off as ballot proposals, uh, so did uh, the recreational uh, marijuana law, except it stayed a ballot proposal. And on November 6th, the uh, voters in the state approved the recreational use of marijuana. So that went into effect on December 6th, and under the law, which is called the Michigan Regulation and Taxation of Marijuana Act, uh, adults 21 years of age or older are permitted to use and possess up to 2.5 ounces of marijuana and grow up to 12 marijuana plants in their residence for recreational use. It also authorizes state-licensed retailers to engage in the commercial sale of marijuana. So we're not going to, my understanding though, is we're not going to see that actually um, in terms of going in to be able to buy recreational marijuana. We certainly have medical marijuana dispensaries um, throughout the state. But my understanding is the the sale of recreational marijuana, that's still about a year off. Yeah, at least. So what, what I think a lot of folks are, are looking, a lot of folks are saying is look to the other states that have legalized recreational marijuana already. Primary example is Colorado. I think it took approximately two years between the uh, enactment of the uh, legislation legalizing recreational marijuana and the actual opening of dispensaries. I think it was about two years. Because what folks have to remember is that uh, individual jurisdictions, individual counties, townships, cities can regulate, you know, the zoning and, and where they want dispensaries, if at all, within their jurisdiction. Certainly, the, the, the reality I think is, regardless of um, whether or not uh, there's an, uh, an ability to, to buy recreational marijuana in the state, and I think the reality is, certainly since the recreational use has now become legal. 
employers are concerned because they are going to have employees that um, partake off of the job. And, and the question that we routinely get does, does this mean that I have to um, accommodate those employees? Can I still drug test as a condition of making a job offer? Can I still uh, conduct drug testing in the workplace if I uh, reasonably suspect that an employee is under the influence of marijuana or if they've been involved in an accident on the job? And, and Anton, what, what, if anything, has, has the legalization of recreational marijuana done uh, with respect to those issues in Michigan? In regards to the legalization of recreational marijuana, fundamentally nothing's changed for employers. I can still require an employee or a, 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 uh, an applicant to take a drug test as a condition of working for me? Absolutely. And if they test positive for marijuana or you know, THC in their system, then you can refrain from hiring them on that basis. How about if they have a medical marijuana card, though? Does, does that change the situation at all? Let's say I'm an applicant and I've applied with the state and I've received a, a card authorizing me as a medical marijuana user and uh, I come in and I take a drug test for a job and I test positive. Doesn't, doesn't that medical marijuana card protect me from the employer refusing to hire? Under the statute, it doesn't look, under the medical marijuana statute in the state, it doesn't look like it. However, we would advise some caution in that regard because we've seen at least two states across the country, Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, interpreting their state laws to prohibit adverse action against an individual who uses medical marijuana. However, we haven't seen that here in Michigan, so as far as we're concerned, uh, it, it doesn't make a difference if someone uh, has a medical marijuana card or not. Right. And, and really what the rub in, in that particular issue is, is that uh, marijuana remains a controlled substance um, under federal law. And until that changes, we've seen it here in a couple cases in Michigan where federal courts have held that there is no duty to accommodate, which would include um, allowing a medical marijuana user who tests positive, um, who is applying for a job, that you have to accommodate that until there is some change in federal law. And so um, the answer, I, I think, as Anton articulated, is, is, is although many employers are concerned that recreation... Um, so fundamentally, things have not changed for employers in, in regards to the employees' use of, of, of marijuana uh, since it has become uh, legal to possess and use marijuana recreationally. If there's no questions on that, uh, the next topic we were going to touch on is uh, firearms in the workplace, uh, which is another question we receive uh, here in, in the Detroit office frequently, and it's something that Bill specializes in advising employers on. So I'll let Bill talk about uh, firearms in the workplace. Yeah, it, it's. I, I really think, and, and we've done presentations on this, and, and we'll be doing one. I will be doing one in April at the Institute for Continuing Legal Education Labor and Employment uh, Seminar uh, in April of this year, and we usually posit the two uh, uh, issues: the um, medical marijuana, recreational marijuana use in the um, in the in the uh, workplace with uh, guns in the workplace certainly not because it's a good idea to mix the two, um, but because really 
for as much airtime as these issues get in the media, from an employer's standpoint, guns are very much like, um, uh, uh, or the, the duty to accommodate guns in the workplace is very, very similar to that uh, with respect to marijuana. And there, there really is not uh, in Michigan, under the law that allows concealed weapons, any duty on the part of the employer to allow somebody that is otherwise licensed to carry a concealed pistol to carry in the course and scope of their employment. So uh, you begin with um, just a couple of basics here in Michigan, and until I I really started to delve into this about five or, or, or seven years ago, it was a bit of a learning experience. First off, Michigan is, you'll, you'll sometimes hear the, the, the um, the uh, uh, term open carry used. And Michigan is an open carry state. So what that means is that if you legally possess the firearm, whether it be a, a pistol or a long gun, you can carry that weapon openly without any license, which seems kind of counterintuitive because you are required if you are going to carry a pistol concealed to have a concealed pistol license. So you don't see that issue much. There was a case, in fact, I I live in Troy, and there was a case of a Troy High student, I think it was four or five years ago, that uh, was familiar with what the law was in Michigan and wanted to test it and decided he was going to take a walk through downtown Birmingham with a uh, rifle um, over his shoulder. And sure enough, that drew the attention of the Birmingham Police Department and and, uh, who were certainly concerned in today's day and age about um, what was uh, potentially going on. And I believe the young man was was arrested and charged. And the case went to the Michigan Supreme Court, and it 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 it, it reaffirmed the principle here in Michigan that you can open carry a pistol or a long arm. And so, um, but that's not that's that's not the that's usually not the question we get. What we get is uh, is is a call that says uh, we have an employee who is a concealed uh, has a concealed pistol license and is telling us that because he or she has a concealed pistol license, they are allowed to carry that on them at all times, including uh, when they're working for me. Is that true? And the answer is no. The statute in Michigan has a uh, specific uh, exemption for employers that says that if the employee, an employee is not allowed, uh, an otherwise licensed employee is not allowed to carry their concealed pistol, if they are in the course and scope of employment. And that's a term of art um, that uh, we frequently see in employment um, cases. And what that means is, is what it says, is that if that individual is on the clock working for you uh, in your workplace or driving one of your company vehicles, they are not allowed to, you can have a policy that pro- prohibits them from carrying uh, their con- uh, their pistol concealed or open, and so it's a fairly straight it's fairly straightforward. Where where the issue comes up is is does that apply to parking lots? That's usually the question we get. So let's assume the employee is licensed to carry a concealed pistol. They know that they're not allowed to when they arrive at the uh, the factory. Um, or the place of business, they're not allowed to bring that weapon into the workplace because the employer prohibits that. But they decide to keep it in the glove box of their car. And the question then is, is can I prohibit that employee from 
um, having that pistol in the parking lot in their vehicle if they otherwise don't bring it into the workplace. And uh, the statute doesn't address that. Uh, there are states that are getting in front of this and are, are addressing that with particular um, regulations regarding parking lots. But the advice we're providing to employers here that I think is consistent with the statute is that if, if that parking lot is privately owned by the employer and is restricted to um, the use of employees and invitees of that employer, uh, you can restrict the um, uh, licensed pistol holder from uh, storing the weapon in their vehicle. Now, I know there's a lot of folks out there that are going to push hard back on that, and I understand where they're coming from. But as I said, at least as we sit here this morning, the courts have not addressed that. So, so uh, I guess the, 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 the analogy or the example that I use with clients that call me on this is, let's say you have a, um, uh, an employer who is in a uh, shopping mall. Their, their business is part of a strip mall. They do not own the parking lot, okay? In that instance, uh, I would advise them that the employee may keep their weapon in the vehicle because that that is not a privately owned parking spot or parking lot, and it is open to the public. Conversely, and you'll see this in many times in factories where you have a fenced uh, 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 parking lot that uh, you can only come into if you're an employee um, or you're a uh, invitee, uh, a vendor for the particular company you can restrict um, the um, possession uh, of weapons in the vehicle and do so, I think, without, without violating the statute. But I'm, I'm pretty confident that uh, that is going to be an issue that we're going to see some litigation on in the near future. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I'm a bit surprised that we haven't seen anything yet, but that may just be because the cases are, are still percolating up from the trial court level. So, Bill, does that mean that, you know, here in Michigan – Deer hunting season, it's a big deal for, for a lot of folks. Does that mean that if I plan on going deer hunting, cutting out at, at noon, going deer hunting, and I don't want to drive back to my house to get my, my rifle, that I can't leave it in my the back of my truck locked up when I come to work? I mean, I'm not walking in the office with my hunting rifle. But I just, what if I just want to leave it in, in, in a locked case in the back of my truck leave at noon and, and head straight up north to go deer hunting, I, I can't do that? But, the, but and, and we're assuming this is a private company parking lot. Or is that what it turns on then? That is what it's going to turn on. Okay. Again, if this were, if the employer were, um, let's say, a Sears uh, that is an anchor tenant at a, uh, at a mall, mm-hmm. and uh, even though they have a particular, let's say they have 50 spots that the mall owner has designated for Sears use as part of the lease agreement, Mm -hmm. okay, and that's where the employee is parking. I think in that instance, I would would advise the employer, I don't think you can prohibit that employer or that employee from bringing their long gun um, uh, and storing it in their vehicle uh, to to head out that afternoon to go hunting. But if it's a a private uh, parking lot, the answer is you can restrict that. And and really, yours is a good question, Anton, because that's usually what it turns on is, is that good folks that have uh, complied with the law and have a permit to carry their uh, uh, weapon and are responsible gun owners um, wanting to do something reasonable like that. They don't want to drive 20 miles back home before they head up north. 
Uh, that then becomes a question of, of what policy do you have. The, the, the rub on that, though, is, is that if you then have an instance, let's say, um, you've allowed that. You say, look, I don't have a problem with Bob. Bob's going to be heading up to go deer hunting uh, later this afternoon, and I know he has his gun in the car, and I don't have a problem with that, even though it's my private parking lot. What you will have a problem with is if um, subsequently down the road you have an employee that is um, uh, may have some mental health issues or has been d- d- displaying some erratic behavior in the workplace, and you know them to be a concealed a licensed concealed pistol owner, and now that individual has is storing in their vehicle in your private lot. Um, they're gone. Um, and the concern is, the call that we get is, can we, can we tell that employee they have to leave the premises and remove the gun, and or can our security force go in and require access to the vehicle to remove it? And if, if, you've, if you've made an exception on one end and you don't make the exception on the other, then you could be into some problems. Uh, so we advise uh, employers to think that through. Um, if you're going to have a strict rule then apply it equally across the board, which I think any good labor and employment lawyer will tell you that's true for almost anything you do. So if you establish a rule, the rule has to be applied uh, consistently, and if it's not applied consistently, um, you may be called to answer as to why in, in, in a subsequent legal action. So, Felicia, I see we've got about three minutes left. Any other any questions that came in? We do. We have actually, I'm going to try and condense them. For the most part, the questions are coming in asking, is there anything that business owners need to be aware of this year? Um, And they're trying to look for common pitfalls. Is there something that you see more common happening with small business owners or uh, that they need to be made known of? That's kind of the common theme. I have about four questions along those lines. We think one thing that's become very, very apparent is the need to take uh, the the Me Too movement seriously. So uh, for anyone who's been living under a rock over the past two years or so, uh, the Me Too movement uh, is something that's, you know, it's a hashtag Me Too movement. It, it's, it's in regards to uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault generally in, in the workplace, um, you know, started with the Harvey uh, Weinstein uh, allegations, it, it spread to involve other uh, well-known individuals such as you know Matt Lauer, Al Franken, uh, Louis C.K., the comedian, and employers have seen an uptick in sexual harassment claims since the the spread of Me Too and the awareness uh, that you know these actions, which which may have been acceptable at some point in time uh, in the past are, are certainly not, uh, and, and they're coming to the forefront today. So if there's one thing we could, we could point out for employers, it's, it's the need to take any allegation of sexual harassment, certainly sexual assault, very seriously. Uh, this is not going anywhere. It's not something you can simply ignore. We would recommend reviewing all of your written policies to ensure they're easily understood and provide the proper protections to your employee employees. Uh, take a look at your reporting procedure. Make sure that if you have a, a reporting procedure that just states that an employee should reach out to their immediate supervisor with any concerns, that the employee also has a, a different route uh, to go around their immediate supervisor to report a concern, even anonymously, because as we've seen, 
a lot of these complaints about sexual harassment are against folks' immediate supervisors. So, of course, it puts them in a very uncomfortable position when they feel like they, they have no one to go to if the policy states they have to go to their immediate supervisor. So, again, we, uh, we, uh, we recommend reconsidering those policies as well. I would like to thank Littler Mendelson for joining us this morning and providing us with valuable information. We always inform our clients and prospects that we are HR professionals, not employment attorneys. Therefore, if you need employment law assistance, I would highly recommend Littler Middleson. They are located at 200 Renaissance Center, Suite 3110, and their telephone number is 313-202-3170. I would also like to thank all of the business owners that participated this morning, and I look forward to you joining us the same time, same place in the future.